Happy Sabbath. We are elated that you are with us once again. We have a conversation that deals with Abraham and Abraham's great test. The Jewish scriptures call this the Akedah or the binding of Isaac. And we hope that as we share this time together, your heart might be bound with God's heart and that through our conversation, you and us may be united. I was thinking about all of you out there who watch and people who call us or email us requesting prayer or simply checking in on us. And it's so amazing. It's so amazing because we contact people from the Pacific Northwest, from Canada, a couple emails from Brazil, but then also people in our community that we long to see. And so today I just want to say hi in a very special way mm -hmm. to Joyce and Phil Reiswig. Joyce and Phil, it was so amazing to see you holding hands every Sabbath as you made your way to church. And we are so thankful that you can stay connected. Know that we are thinking of you and we're praying for you. And you are in our hearts as are most of our local population in Loma Linda who for some reason or another can't get out to church and they depend now on this virtual medium uh, to stay connected. So Joey and I simply want to say we're thinking of all of you, whether you are in Loma Linda or in Canada or across the world, you continue to be in our prayers. As I said before, we're going to talk about Genesis chapters 22 and on. But before we do that, can I invite you to pray with me? God, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for being a God that looks for us and a God that continues to bind us together. We pray that you remain the tie that binds. We pray in this name, the name, the only name, the only name that will make every knee bow, the name that will make the mountains flatten and the rough terrain made smooth again, the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I want to just start by reading uh, the introduction to the Akedah story. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. It's controversial right at the outset, isn't it, Joey? Ah, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and this is the last in a series of 10 tests, at least in the mind of the author of Genesis, that Abraham goes to in order to refine his faith. How, what do you make of this language or the notion that God sometimes tests us? Hmm, yeah. I mean, the idea that God tests us isn't as disturbing as how God tests Abraham mm -hmm. in this passage. But I, I really did appreciate how the writer of the Sabbath School um, lesson study talked about that tests have two different connotations. Mm -hmm. uh, one with the aspect of judgment, like passing a test mm -hmm. for a class that we're taking. If you were taking finals, they're, we're getting judged on the knowledge that we've been able to accumulate. But then the other aspect is the aspect of grace. Mm -hmm. And that test, as you put it, um, refines us. And the test is not so much meant to just test our knowledge, but also to help improve mm -hmm. and grow us. And in that that way, maybe it makes a little bit more sense what, what God does with Abraham. And yet, it's still a challenging passage. 
it's going to be a challenging passage and we're going to get into it in a second. But I, I want to just linger over that idea for a moment. I think the lesson did make that dichotomy uh, beautifully clear. Mm-hmm. I also think that language and words are loaded sometimes. And so when we think about this idea of testing, mm-hmm. we misinterpret sometimes or mistranslate what the original language intends. So a better translation, and some versions of our English Bible have kept the original flavor, is not test, but a temptation. Now, that's problematic on in a whole other uh, arena, because if we're uncomfortable with the idea of God testing us, we're also uncomfortable, or we might be uncomfortable with the idea that God sends temptations to us. But Luther grappled with this idea quite a bit. And so there's this German word that he uses to describe the tester, the temptation that has befallen him. Mm. He says, Anfechtung, because, you know, German is a language that just rolls off the tongue so easily. Uh, But what this actually means or the the feeling that is that is behind this is that these issues that we deal with, Mm. these problems in our character or in our faith maturation that we struggle with are going to be usually the same issue. It's not like uh, you're going to start dealing with an issue at 20, and then by the time you're our age, it's this whole other slew of issues. It's usually the same issue in different iterations. And with Abraham, I think the issue, at least from chapter 12 and on, has been apparent. Mm. God has promised something, and Abraham is has become really adept at taking God's promise and trying to leverage that promise in order to have his will be done, mm. not God's will. And so I think here in Viakedah, you have this ultimate temptation, not mm-hmm. that God places in Abraham's path, but that Abraham has been dealing with internally for at least 10 chapters, which is, do I surrender fully to God's plan or do I continue to try and stir God's plan so that my will be done? And so this is a temptation that Abraham is going to face and We're going to talk about how he wrestles with it in the preceding uh, verses and in the following chapters. I love that. That idea that this is only a temptation for Abraham because it's it's something that connects with a a struggle that he's having inside. So then what you're saying is that that God does this to sort of uncover those hidden dynamics, the the sin that he struggles Mm -hmm. with and to expose it so that there can be healing and growth, and maybe Abraham can discover that he has grown in that that area. Yeah, and I think that's that's not something that we can place at God's doorstep. And an analogy that I was thinking as I was as I was reading this lesson is I love sweets, and if if you've ever spent some time here in Loma Linda, you know that people send chocolate boxes to my office. There's a little bowl full of chocolates outside um, that one of our assistants has, and she knows that at least once a day I'm going to stop by and eat a couple of chocolates. Now, here's the problem. She doesn't put that bowl of chocolates there in, uh, to tempt me. The reason she does it is uh, she wants to be welcoming and she wants people that come into our office to feel like they're cared for. Um, And so the temptation isn't the chocolates. The temptation for me is that I need to discipline myself to just have one and not take the whole bowl. And so the issue is not with our lovely assistant who places 
the box of chocolates or the bowl of chocolates outside. The issue is with me. And so I think this is what's happening with Abraham. The issue then isn't that God is saying, hey, do this. It's something that Abraham has been dealing with, has been struggling with um, from Hagar to the, um, the multiple in inclusions he has made in Egypt and the multiple mistakes he has made with Sarah. Abraham is dealing with an issue of control, and that's what's going to be at the heart of our chapter uh, today. Wow, I'm fascinated to see how that how how that plays out in the, in the passage. So let's get into it. Sure. So let's look at it. Uh, verse two, Joey. Then God said, "Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain." I will show you. Now, some scholars talk about this story as a the author uh, his ultimate attempt at casting aspersions on the issue of child sacrifice mm. which is very prevalent in Canaan as we know i'm not sure i buy that i think the author is trying to actually touch at something much more primal within us mm. which is this idea of are we willing to sacrifice these things that we, the things that we cling to the most mm. because God has asked us to sacrifice them. Mm. So I think that's what the issue has been, is, uh, is being, is that's the issue that's we're trying to resolve here. However, it must have sounded rather strange to hear Yahweh's voice and to hear these words coming from God, sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. Yeah. Yeah, it's the way that God says that is just so striking. He says, sacrifice your son, your your only son, whom you love. That idea that he's really emphasizing, this is your only son. Mm -hmm. This is the son that I promised that I would do the covenant through, right? perform the covenant through. This is a son that you've pinned all your hopes and all your dreams. Because like we talked about last week, I mean, Abraham's obsession has been, when am I going to have this son? When is this son going to come? When am I going to have these descendants that you promised me? When am I going to own this land? He's He's been pining for this for years. And now he finally has it. And now God is asking him to give it up, mm -hmm. right? Um, going back to what you said, that God is asking Abraham to give up the thing that he loves or wants the most here. And yet, what strikes me about this passage is that we don't get any insight into the mind of Abraham. Mm. I, I sort of wish Moses had kind of gone through, oh, and Abraham was in anguish all night long as he considered whether this was God's. There's none of that mm -hmm. there. And the very next verse is early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and he, he sets up on this mm -hmm. journey. So does he struggle with this? Does he have anguish over this? Do you think those are just missing from the, the passage? Or, or, or has Abraham gotten to the place where this isn't even a struggle mm -hmm. for him? The author, I think, does a brilliant job at capturing that internal struggle mm -hmm. through the absence of language. Mm -hmm. If you can picture it, and he he does emphasize this, and there's there's a couple hints of how devastating the internal 
struggle is for Abraham. So Abraham doesn't say anything. Mm. He gets up, takes Isaac with him, and they spend three days in silence. Mm. And I think that's intentional. That's intentional on the part of the author as the author wants to kind of have you fill in that void space, mm. that, that three-day space of silence okay. with your own thoughts and with your own struggling and with your own wrestling. And the reason he's doing it is he wants you in a very real sense to become Abraham. Mm. He wants you as a reader to ask yourself the question, would I be able to sacrifice that thing which I love the most because God has told me? And so the absence of language actually allows you to enter into the story and to have this direct wrestling with God and to fill that silence with your own thoughts and with your own questions. I've done this a lot, by the way, as I've read the story of the Akedah dozens of times. I've asked myself, would I justify the, uh, the act of sacrificing Isaac or would I justify the act of taking Isaac and saying no to God? After all, justifications can be made. I might have heard wrong. This isn't the first time that, um, that I can change maybe God's mind. We know a little bit about uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah story as, as Abraham negotiates with God. That, all that is absent. So I've often wondered what my response would be. And I think that's intentional on the part of the author. He wants you to really embody and live and breathe into the story. Your own biases, your own prejudices, your own struggles as you answer the question, what would I do if I were in Abraham's spot? Wow, that's so powerful. So in order to make this story, a universal story, one that every reader can identify with. He doesn't vocalize the, the, the struggles that Abraham is going through so that it leaves space mm -hmm. for us to navigate our mm -hmm. own struggles and read our own experiences into the story. And then the, the silence is broken, Joey, mm -hmm. on day three. He turns and still he doesn't actually speak to Isaac. Notice that the text says he mm -hmm. turns and he looks at his servants and he says, Hey, let us go. Uh, stay here with the donkey. Well, I and the boy, notice he doesn't use Isaac's name. And that again is going to be intentional. I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And so it's this moment where he tells his servants, hey, we're going to go pray and we're going to go worship. Mm -hmm. uh, which would have been very typical, but he's creating some distance with the servants because he knows that he must be alone to do what must be done. Mm -hmm. And so even there, you have this hint of struggle and strife that you were talking about. If I take my servants with him, and Gerhard von Rod in his excursus on Genesis makes a really point, makes this a really poignant point. He says, if Abraham takes his servants with them, mm. the temptation of having other people on the road that will say, hey, maybe you heard wrong, or mm. God cannot will this, or let's stop you from, that might dissuade them from actually accomplishing that which must be done. And so even here, as he refers to his servant and he to his servants and not to Isaac, he kind of depersonalizes yeah. the, his son and then just removes any obstacle that might be present as he seeks to fulfill God's call. Wow. So he separates himself from the voices of others who may contradict the voice of mm -hmm. God that he has heard. But no, now normally we, we encourage people that 
when they hear a message from God to talk to other people, mm -hmm. to get other people's perspective on that, that to get people a broader, um, like, are you really hearing this from mm -hmm. God? And yet here, Abraham doesn't do that. He doesn't talk to his wife, which is, is noticeable from the silence that Sarah, I mean, she's not been a woman typically to be silent about these kinds of issues. She's completely silent in this passage, right? She's not mentioned at all in this passage. He doesn't confer with his wife that we can tell. He doesn't talk to his servants about it. He takes this path alone. So are there times when we are so convinced about the, the, the word of God that we do not take it to mm. the community? That's to, a great question. To, to reflect on it? That's a great question. By the way, the uh, Jewish tradition says that upon returning from Moriah, Abraham tells this story to Sarah. Mm. Sarah takes three breaths and she dies. Uh, wow. That's kind of how the, how the rabbis interpret what is to follow, which is Sarah's death. Um, I think this would have been really perplexing, Joey, if yeah. this would have been Abraham's first rodeo, his first test, mm -hmm. the first temptation, the first moment where he is called seemingly to do something that is... All that is nonsense. Mm. Notice that it, all the way back when this starts in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is being asked by God to relinquish his past. Leave your father's home and go mm -hmm. to the land that I will show you. Now, in 22, Abraham is being asked to relinquish his future. Mm. I will make of you a great nation, count the stars of the heaven. And now all that dream has seemed to come to a crashing end. I think what is, what's actually happening is in that mm. space between when God asks you to let go of your past and when God asks you to let go of your future, mm to fully live in that space that he has created for you, I think that path, that journey, is one where you have to experience discerning the voice of God. Wow. And so I think as this journey from past to future progresses, Abraham has become more attuned at discerning the voice of God. Mm. So the ultimate answer, I think, to your question is, would it have been beneficial for Abraham to consult with someone? Well, maybe if this is in verse 12, which, mm -hmm. by the way, he does, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't go out of harem alone. Mm -hmm. He takes people with him that have bought into this mission. But in that process, the process becomes more and more lonely. Abraham becomes less and less dependent on the community around him. And so I think the the lack of people that you're bouncing ideas on is has to be experienced when you have attained or achieved enough discernment to really recognize when it is your voice versus uh, God's voice. And I think one of the principles that you can use to distinguish between your voice and God's voice is how uncomfortable is this move making me? Mm -hmm. If I am really uncomfortable, then perhaps... Uh, that can alert me that this isn't my voice, that it's a voice, uh, that it's Yahweh's voice. Wow. So there's this journey, a progression of Abraham being able to discern God's voice and understand God's voice. And also maybe a recognition that that sometimes the voices around us are not correct. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are not properly hearing the voice of God. And that is a challenging place to be. And yet it seems like, like you said, God doesn't give 
Abraham this challenge at the beginning of his journey with him. It's it's at the end. And it, there's just such a stark contrast between um, the, 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 the test that God gives at the beginning of the journey at Haran and then here at the end, because at Haran, there's, there is a spoken promise, right? Mm-hmm. If you leave this land, if you leave Haran and your family and your peoples behind, then what's waiting for you is a land, it's a de- descendants, it's prosperity, it's influence, right? All of these things God explicitly tells Abraham. In this test, there is no explicit promise that God makes, only an applied one, only one that has grown throughout years of journeying with God, that God has my best intention Mm -hmm. at heart, God doesn't even vocalize it to him anymore. It is just, Abraham, go and do this, and no implied promise. And yet Abraham steps forward, and we're told in the book of Hebrews that God, that Abraham, we're given a little bit of insight into Abraham, that that Abraham believed that God had his best Mm -hmm. intentions, that he would fulfill the promise that he had promised so many times before, even though he doesn't reiterate it here. And there's, I think, an importance as people of faith wrestle with the community that surrounds us. Um, We are all people of faith, and we all hopefully have a support system that we can speak to and then can speak into our lives. Mm. But sometimes that support system is wrong. There's a story that, and the Jews know this. They know this but through painful experience. There's a story that just illustrates this beautifully, where uh, in the book of in the book of Kings, you have this prophet Micaiah mm. and Jehoshaphat and Ahab are uh, come together and they're talking about war. And uh, Jehoshaphat's really nervous. He don't want to go to war. And so um, they bring all the prophets because Jehoshaphat is a believer. So they bring all the prophets of Yahweh and all of them say, go out. You're going to be victorious. Seems like that's pretty direct, clear and concise. These are priests and prophets of Yahweh. Yeah. It, it seems like everything's okay. And yet um, Jehoshaphat's still not convinced is there anyone else Mm. that we can ask and uh, the king says yeah but there's this one prophet i hate him because he never prophesies positively (laughs) and his name is micaiah and micaiah comes and gives us this insight into what is happening where yahweh says who will be he talks to his divine counsel and says who will be a a deceiving spirit that will go and trick Mm. my own prophets and it's only micaiah one out of you know, one against all these other prophets. And they're, I want to emphasize, they're all prophets of Yahweh. And they're all, by at least by the text, faithful. Yeah. It's just that the broader community has been deceived. And there's this one other prophet that actually sees what is actually what is going on. And so I think um, often it's helpful to communicate with our community of faith about what we ought to do. But sometimes, and just sometimes, the process of discernment forces us to ask this question, am I feeling discomfort? Mm. Is, is this discomfort that I'm feeling internal? And if it is, then I need to ask myself, um, may, is it God that is pushing me beyond the limits of what I'm comfortable with? I mean, that's a great point. Um, the prophets seem to be clear that it's not always the majority voice that's correct, right? That sounds a little bit un-American to say, but it's not the majority uh, um, perspective that's usually correct. Often throughout the prophets, it was the minority voice that was correct. Um, That's 
um, this concept of the remnant that runs mm-hmm. throughout the scripture that that it is a small segment of the population that is truly listening to God's right. voice and following God's voice and being true to God's voice. So, so we often have to we have to be careful of always listening to the largest voice. Just, I don't want to take too long on this sidetrack, but how does that go with our church polity, where we say, you know, when the majority of the vo- of the people of God, the majority of the delegates vote on this, then it is the voice of mm. God that we're listening, that mm. we're hearing to. Mm. Is that not correct? Mm. Should we not be operating in that way? <sighs> well, um, it's a, a way to operate. Yeah. It's not the only way to operate. I was reading First uh, Corinthians yesterday uh, for our Friday devotional worship and Paul is talking about prophecy Mm -hmm. Uh, and he starts talking about the gift of prophecy and he says that when this is happening people need to be silent in church so somebody gets up and Mm -hmm. prophesies and then the rest of the people are silent until the spirit touches uh, someone in the congregation and that person gets up and we don't move At least that's what the text seems to intimate, that we don't move until there's consensus. Mm -hmm. It's not a 60-40 majority split. It's we don't move until we have consensus. There are faith traditions that function this way. Uh, Joey, you know I'm doing doctoral work at a Society of Friends or Quaker University, and this is how the Quakers operate. Mm. They don't move on church polity until there's consensus because they believe the spirit draws or works towards consensus. Mm. And so when there is one dissenting voice, because we don't want we don't want to run the risk that that might be the true prophet, we we wait for consensus. Now mm. There are some practical reasons why that might be problematic because we'd still be because we would never get but maybe we would never get budgets passed. But um, there is there is this other way which was apparently prevalent in early Christian traditions and is still practiced in some traditions today that is about trying to build consensus. Mm, Wow, that's so powerful because that really does highlight the importance of the minority voice and not just listening to the majority. Um, I think that's important, especially in larger issues um, that have a larger impact on the church. Like you pointed out though, there are some real practical challenges because I've never taken part in a vote in a church where we had 100% consensus as in a larger church organization. I don't know why, I don't know if it's just people wanting to to be that one dissenting voice, but there's even in, in questions like, um, is the sky blue just as test questions? There's always one person yeah. that puts, at least one person that puts yeah. no in there. <laughs> so there's always that one dissenting. So that, that would make it a challenge to get things done. But faith, faith communities that are healthy mm-hmm. actually have a track record where we try to not only listen to, mm-hmm. encourage, but also protect the dissenting voices because... Yeah we operate at the mercy of our blind spots Mm. and we cannot recognize those blind spots unless we recognize and we are able to listen openly to those voices of dissent yeah Uh, so i think it's it's always important to ask the question is there anyone else Mm. uh, that we can hear from particularly when you have 
a group that is already decided on an action, which is at what's happening in Kings. They mm-hmm. want to go to war. And yeah. so Jehoshaphat saying, well, is there anyone else we can hear from? And ultimately that uh, Micaiah's prophecy does uh, end up being very beneficial for him. But yeah. let's, uh, as you said, we don't want to spend too much on that sidetrack. Yeah. I want to point you now to verse six, Joey. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son. And he himself, and by the way, this is the first time that we hear the name Yitzhak. Mm-hmm. On, and he himself t- carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Mm-hmm. What do you make of that of that dialogue? Wow. Um, I mean, on one hand, it, if just on a very superficial level, it seems like Abraham is lying. But when we look into the thought process of Abraham, it does really believe, it seemed like Abraham did believe that, that God would provide mm-hmm. in one way or another, whether it's resurrecting Isaac back from the dead mm-hmm. or that he would provide some other way out. He really did believe that God himself would provide a lamb for the burnt offering um, mm. for his son. I love verse eight, right? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And then the two of them went together. And we don't we don't really know or we mm. don't have an insight into Abraham's mind. We do know that Abraham deeply loves Isaac. Mm. And the reason we know that is the text is telling us there. Notice, Isaac is carrying... Uh, the wood. Abraham is carrying the fo- the torch and the knife. Mm. And these are things that actually cause harm, right? It can burn you or it can cut you. And so Abraham is, even, even here, you have the author kind of giving you this morsel, this hint that Abraham is desperately trying to protect his son, mm-hmm. even as they are going up to uh, to Mount Moriah, which is uh, which will later be the mount from which the sacrifices and the in the daily sacrifices at the temple are held. Mm-hmm. The story is powerful um, because you have kind of us here. It, it descends again into silence when they reach the place God had told them about. Abraham built an altar there and arranged wood on it. He bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out and took the knife to slay his son. So this is the, the binding piece, the Akedah piece. And it's Abraham does everything. He builds the altar, places the wood. And then he, in it, it, the, the, I was reading it in Hebrew, and it's so beautiful because it seems like it's one motion, right? Binding and placing. And Isaac goes willingly. Um, and so, yes, it's it's Abraham acting, but there is this beauty and passi- passivity, which is also very foreign to us. And it just struck me as I was reading uh, the text in the original, how passive Isaac seems to be as all of this is happening, where he is simply allowed or where he allows himself. Um, and I think it speaks to Isaac's a state of mind a bit. Often we think that religious and faith life is about motion. It's about being active. It's about doing. It's about engaging in spiritual disciplines. It's about 
sharing our faith. It's about prayer. It's about uh, scripture study. Mm -hmm. But it seems here that there is a space for passivity mm -hmm. within within religious experience within our faith walk. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've 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 always often wondered what was going to. I mean, I wonder what going was going through Abraham's mind, but I do also wonder what's going through Isaac's mm -hmm. mind in this passage. You know, um, it is a confusing um, passage for me, and I wish again, and it may maybe us also having to put our, uh, the the writer also convincing us to put our um, ourselves in Isaac's place mm -hmm. as well so that we can see would we go along with this when we're young and hardy and strong mm -hmm. and we could easily overcome our very old father and, and run away yes. would we submit in this way but um that's a difficult question because I, man what convinced Isaac to do this because Isaac doesn't have the same history mm -hmm. that Abraham had Right, we just went through this whole journey that Abraham had, with um, with being willing to uh, struggling with this idea of control and and that that sin that that God is trying to wean him off of, and finally he gets this ultimate test. But Ab but Isaac hasn't had that benefit. He hasn't had that long journey, and yet he submits. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps it's because submission isn't going to be the character flaw that Isaac has to deal with. Yeah. We know that Isaac will have a character flaw that, that, that he has to deal with. Mm -hmm. But it isn't submission. Mm -hmm. It's his inability to, see, to, to provide um, for his two children in an, in an environment that promotes equity. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be his issue is going to be in the way he, he chooses to uh, show a, a preferential treatment for one child over the other and how that starts to create uh, and to weave in certain tensions. So submission isn't the issue. Now, Isaac didn't have the long tradition that Abraham has with Yahweh, but, Abraham, but Isaac has a history with Abraham, and it is mm. that history that allows... Just like Abraham is placing himself in, this, in the hands of God, Isaac, in the language is, is in, that's why the language is mm. passive. Isaac is placing himself in his father's hands. Mm. And this is why, uh, as early as Tertullian, this story was used time and time again as a, a wondrous example of uh, Jesus' story as he went up on the mountain and was crucified because it's kind of this passive giving yourself over to your father's will in much the same way that uh, God is trying to teach Abraham. Yeah, I mean, so Abraham actually gets the opportunity not only to be the one who is submissive, but the one who is holding someone else's trust. So he gets the perspective both of the father and of the God that mm -hmm. is holding that trust and also the perspective of the one who is submitting themselves to trust. He gets he gets both perspectives, which is really, really powerful here. He gets to see almost through God's eyes in the trust that his son mm. gives to him. Do you think that made him more likely to go through this with this act or maybe more fearful about should I go through with this with my son submitting his, no. his whole life into my hands? He's trusting me so much no. with this. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. Again, we wish we could have kind of this internal dialogue, right? That uh, that the characters and the protagonists in this story have. Mm. We do know that um, Abraham reaches out, takes the knife, mm -hmm. and then and then the angel of the Lord calls out. And it's the same. Notice that it's the same language, right? And you don't have to know Hebrew to see that. Uh, verse eleven: Abraham, Abraham. Mm -hmm. uh, verse one: Abraham. And then the reply for for from Abraham is exactly the same. Here I am. Mm. And then God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And this idea of fear, we've talked about a, a lot. It, it's not connected with the experience of being afraid. It's good. It, the, the word, at least in the Old Testament, that we translate as fear is almost always used in, the, in an act of worship. And so mm -hmm. it's interesting that, that submission to God's will is God's ultimate act of worship. It's not about the temple, uh, although there are cultic and temple ties to this particular story. I mean, you were, you were in Jerusalem a couple mm -hmm. months ago and you saw, at least where tradition says, that depending on if you're uh, a Jew or a Muslim, that yeah. either Abraham, uh, that Abraham laid either Ishmael or Isaac on the rock, on, on that rock. And yeah. that's where the Dome of the Rock now is. Yeah. Um, so there are some cultic and religious experiences, but really the idea of worship has to do with this, uh, with this notion of submission. So I think that's another point that, that we would be amiss not to point, not to share with you that the, greatest act of worship that we can that we can have is the act of submission yeah and I, and as i was reading this passage and it, really throughout the whole story of abraham it's this theme of obedience that comes up over and over again this act of submission of trust in god and so my, i guess the question i'm left with is why is obedience so important to god why is that kind of trust so crucial to our faith walk and our journey mm. with god um and does that contradict our, our ability to decide things for ourselves and to make decisions and to be independent thinkers? Um, how does how do those two things interplay? Mm. This is the delicate dance that you and I do week after week. Mm. I think the question that you're pushing and that you're asking is, after all, the central question that the text is asking. And the answer to the question is in the text in itself. Mm. Obedience opens the window for new possibilities. Mm. So Abraham hears and ultimately obeys, and then and only then mm. are other possibilities revealed to him. There's mm. a ram that is caught in a thicket. Now that ram, it doesn't say, the text doesn't say that it appeared there miraculously or uh, it, was, it wasn't. It was always there. It's just Abraham didn't realize it was there mm. until he submitted his will uh, to the will of God. So obedience actually, obedience to God actually opens up a slew of possibilities that otherwise remain closed because after all, we finite beings only can process a finite number of possibilities. Wow, that is so powerful. Yeah, that obedience opens up possibilities when we trust in God. He's able to show us things that we could not see without him um, and when we're limited by our own, our own perspective. I'm reminded of the book that we've been reading 
um, as a staff, believing is seeing, mm-hmm. and in in the chapter about faith, he talks about his own experience with obedience and how his his struggle with his he and his wife with having children, and then ultimately in his darkest moment when he felt like God, are you not here? We've been trusting, we've been praying, we've been asking you for a child. You know how much we need this, want this. And um, he talks about a moment when God really became real to him. And that moment came with an an act of submission. When he trusted this, when God said, hand this over to me, I've got this, Mm -hmm. let it go. You've been holding on too tight. And when he did that, the new possibility of adoption, Mm -hmm. which he had not even, I mean, the option of adoption was always there. And yet he didn't even see that as an option until that moment um, when he was able to let go. And God showed him this beautiful thing, which he now, I mean, he has a beautiful son because of it. And um, that possibility opened up Mm. because of his submission with God. And so I think this brings us right full circle to where we started our conversation. So here we are and we hear Abraham and we focus on uh, how difficult this must have been. And um, I don't even want to think about the therapist bills that Abraham and Isaac had to pay after, after this. <laughs> Dad, you really were going to kill me? Um, so we focus on that part. But really what, the, what these 12, uh, with these 10 trials uh, that occur from chapter 12 to chapter 22 are about is it's a formational, formational experience. Mm-hmm. And formation ultimately is your capacity. Spiritual formation has to do with your capacity to surrender your will mm-hmm. to the will of God mm-hmm. so that your will and the will of God become aligned, so that you begin to desire the things that God desires and so mm-hmm. that you begin to abhor those things that God abhors. And I think it's happening in Abraham's life, but it's not easy. And so I really, really want to spend some time, Joey, just inviting our, our, our viewers and, and talking amongst us about sometimes how difficult the formational path is. The path of being formed into Christ's likeness isn't easy mm-hmm. because it is the path of the cross. Mm-hmm. It is the path of it is a path of pain and sorrow and frustration and it's a path that call that causes you to begin to deny yourself. And there's a lot of joy in the Christian life. But I think sometimes, particularly to people that have just entered this experience, we sometimes don't focus enough on how painful the road will be as we are formed or we are allowing ourselves to die and our will to die in order to better align with the will of Christ. Wow. Wow. And this is the tension that we talked about last time, right? That there is this tension between joy, <clears throat> the joy and the wide and level mm-hmm. path that, that we have for following God. And yet that it is still a struggle. Um, as I was studying this passage, there was a um, quote from Brene Brown that mm. really resonated with me. And she wrote, um, and she's describing her experience of going back to church mm-hmm. after being away, um, going back to church. And she says, I definitely went back to church for all the wrong reasons. I really went because this is hard and this hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they say, go back to church. That's what everybody does. So I went back to church thinking that it would be like an epidural, like it would take the pain away. Mm. 
Like I, I would just replace research with church. You know, the church would make the pain go away. And then I discovered that faith and church was not like an epidural at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. Mm -hmm. Power. Yeah, she just has a way with words. She, doesn't she's she? great. She's great. <laughs> but that imagery of a midwife that, that nobody expects the birth of a child to be completely painless, mm -hmm. right? We know that it's going to be painful, but we push because we know it's worth it. Well, we know. So it's easy for me to we say. Don't know, we don't know. We don't really know. Uh, but our spouses know. <laughs> our so spouses, spouses know. out there, wives out there, we don't know. We we'll don't. never know. You guys, you ladies are awesome. <laughs> we, uh, we are in awe of how awesome you are. Continue. <laughs> well said. Well said. I completely concur. But there is this idea that that there is something at the end of this pregnancy that is worth it. Yeah. And that seems to be the journey of faith, that it's not going to be completely painless. Sometimes we want a pain-free, problem-free life, but that is not mm. the life that we have, and that is not the journey of faith. That, like you said, often the journey of faith takes us into places that make us uncomfortable. And maybe even being uncomfortable is a sign that we are right where God yeah. wants us to be because he is stretching us and helping us grow and mature in faith. So we want to then answer the question, well, what happens at the end? Mm. And this is, again, why Tertullian uses this passage in, in his sermon so masterfully. Um, Abraham then gives a name to the place. Mm. Yes. The name of this place shall be the Lord will provide mm -hmm. because the Lord provided on a mountain. Yeah. And that, I think, is what gets you through the experience of childbirth, mm -hmm. of spiritual childbirth, that formational path that you are traveling. It's the idea that the Lord has already provided for you on a mountain. So let's make sure we understand this because this is the very heartbeat of the gospel. We don't submit in order to be saved. Mm -hmm. We submit in, in order to be formed. Mm -hmm. The Lord has already provided mm -hmm. salvation on a mountain. All we are doing now is responding to that act by forming each other, forming one another into Christ-likeness. Yes, and that, that phrase, the Lord will provide, has been commemorated in many songs with the term Jehovah Jireh, mm -hmm. right? That God, this, the Lord provides. And he provides even before we submit. Yeah. It's there, we just don't see it until we do. Because obedience opens the eyes of the heart. Joey, let's pray as we conclude our study for today. Again, we love hearing your comments. We love sharing with you. We love receiving prayer requests, questions, concerns, things that you found in the text. We'd love to include this uh, as part of the uh, broadcast, mmendez at L-O-U-C dot O-R-G and J-O-O-H at L-O-U-C dot O-R-G. We hope to hear from you soon, and Joey, now pray us out. Good and gracious God, we know we know from the prayer requests that we've, we've received that there are many in this community, people who are watching right now that are going through difficult times, times of loss, times of illness and sickness, times that are a struggle in their careers, in their relationships. So through all of this, 
help us to help us to trust like Abraham that you are the God who provides that you already have a way and yet that doesn't make the road any easier <laughs> knowing you have a way doesn't make the road easier but it does make it possible to trust you in the midst of this struggle so help us to cling to you like Abraham clung to you like Isaac clung to you and trust that you are Jehovah Jireh the God the Lord who provides this is our prayer in Jesus name and then may God provide what you need till we meet again. Mm -hmm.